In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. First, thank you to our listening audience. Our goal for each podcast topic is to take a critical approach to educate and hopefully motivate you to investigate for yourself and be more informed. On today's podcast, we clean out the inbox and Twitter feed to answer our listener questions. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Roger, Kelly, good morning, guys. Good Good morning. I'm excited for this. This is something we've been talking about for a while. We've... um, We've been around now. We have 23 episodes recorded and published, and we've been growing. There has been a number of questions coming through our email address and also to the Dr. McFillin in Twitter. Let me give those to you really quick. Our email address, radgenpodcast at gmail.com, or contact the Dr. McFillin uh, through Twitter. He's more engaged in that area at Dr. McFillin underscore PsyD, P-S-Y-D. Okay, um, we got a number of questions from some listeners that we want to get to, but I want to start off by asking my own question, and um, this is just because it's relevant to what happened this week. I don't know if you saw the news um, on Spotify. There, uh, the Joe Rogan podcast is is big on there, and this past week, a popular musician decided that he had had enough. Is he really that popular anymore? I was going to say. I, I would say he's notable. His Neil name Young. is Neil Young. Yeah. So I mean, he was popular. Neil Young came out and said, hey, listen, me or him, you decide Spotify. Spotify said, well, sorry, Mr. Young. Fa- Have a fascinating good day. here because this, what they're doing is they want to censor the experts that Joe Rogan brings on the podcast. If, you, if anyone listens to Joe, Joe Rogan, he's often like, hey, listen, don't listen to me. I'm asking the questions. I'm not an expert in this area. That's right. And he brings on experts. So why would people want to mute the voices of experts that come on his podcast? So this leads to my question. Number one, does Neil Young truly believe that we can keep on rocking in a free world? Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Did we have a song that said <laughs> the exact opposite of what he's, what he's trying to do? But my more serious question is, um, remember the 1940s and 1950s? Senator uh, Joseph McCarthy, McCarthyism. Are we in a period right now where there's, I don't know what the term would be, a reverse McCarthyism happening, where it's no longer the conservative uh, canceling out uh, the socialism influence that was happening in Hollywood, and and now it's the exact opposite happening, where well, it's it's um, collectivists and globalists, mm-hmm. co- you know, trying to eliminate anyone that's questioning their that narrative, that specific narrative, um, and I think that that's been ongoing for years and years yeah and we the last podcast if you haven't listened to it the education podcast that's from years and years of getting young individuals to you know to believe in in this collectivist mindset Mm -hmm. so all right i was just i thought that was interesting that that came up this week and and as i heard it on the news i was like neil young i mean he's a free speech component why on earth would he be taking this stance and why would anybody want to um you know attack 
free, independent thought and speech. You know, it's that word misinformation now. Anything that doesn't align with the, mar- right. the narrative is, is misinformation. So why, why would people believe misinformation is dangerous, right? Like have, a, have a voice, have an opinion, share it in a free society. Let's have debate. Uh, it's scary. It is scary. It is scary. <clears throat> All right. Um, I say we jump into some of these questions from some of our listeners. I'll ask the first one. Kelly, maybe uh, you can go through uh, a few uh, as well. You bet. So uh, let me tackle this first one. I, I feel like these are, are pretty much going um, in order, maybe compared to some of the episodes that we've launched. So some of these might be a little bit older than some of the ones that might be more recent later on. But uh, let's. this first one I think is really important. This is coming from Carl in California. Thank you for your podcast on antidepressants. It was eye-opening. However, if this is true, why are so many physicians prescribing these drugs and why do some people say they help? Yeah, great question, Carl. We really appreciate the, the email and uh, keep listening. So we'd like to get in depth on some of these subjects. Um, let's just kind of split it up here. The first question, it's an it's important one. Why do some people say they help? I hate using the term antidepressant because you guys know how I feel. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it has an antidepressant effect. Right. Like any drug, and uh, there's a psychiatrist, Dr. Joanna Moncrief, who has developed a career on, on talking about this and trying to educate the, the public on the drug-centered approach. Whenever you take any drug, you are altering your physiology. So if you go back and listen to our previous podcast on uh, the chemical imbalance myth, or do antidepressants even work? Uh, what we say is there is no chemical imbalance. It's not correcting any abnormality. What it is it is happening is it is inducing a chemical abnormality, which means it affects your physiology different. So there is a numbing effect, a blunting of emotion when you take drugs. So there will be a percentage of people, maybe they're in intense emotional pain, that when they initially take that SSRI, for example, there's a, a disconnect or a blunting uh, of, of emotion, a numbing effect. So there are a percentage of people who will interpret that as helpful, at least for a period of time. What is really important to know is that it's a very, very small percentage of people who are going to experience that. Many people will experience it as aversive because it's not just a numbing of emotions. It's like a numbing of uh, the genitals. People talk about feeling like less than alive, less than human. And then a lot of people don't feel anything at all. And so there's, it gets complicated. Um, I think we've talked about the, plus, the placebo effect Mm -hmm. Um, and how it's an active placebo. So there's going to be a a percentage of people just who believe that it's doing something, who are going to acknowledge that it's, it's helping them. And I think that aspect of hope is important. This idea that a, a pill can begin to change the way you feel, because let's face it, there's people who are internalizing their emotional pain as if there's something wrong with them. That's the brainwashing effect of, of saying, you know, there's something wrong with your brain, a chemical imbalance. So they believe they can correct it. And just the hope of working with a doctor and saying that if I take this drug, then I'm going to feel much better, provides people an initial boost. This is why the trials were short term. That's why they're like eight week trials, because scientifically we know that people are going to have a reaction to something in a short period of time. However, the long term effect, 
as we know, is you'll need more of the substance to be able to kind of blunt those emotions. Many people find it aversive. And when it comes to healing from emotional disorders, being able to tolerate, regulate emotions, feel them actually is, is therapeutic. So the people that say that it helps, and again, even in trials, it's a very small percentage. We can't really distinguish it from a, a, a placebo response. And it was an active placebo because you know it's the agent. Um, we're not denying their, their experience and they really believe that it, that it, that it helps. But when we, when we talk about like what is long-term healing and overcoming emotional struggles and episodes, this intervention in everything we know about the data is more likely to prolong it and actually increase the possibility of having a more severe and chronic condition in the long-term. So that's why people are saying that it would help. Let's go back to why uh, the physicians are prescribing these drugs. Bottom line, uh, the pharmaceutical industry has overwhelmed primary care. Uh, 75 to 80% of these drugs are right in the primary care settings. They're taking their trial data, uh, which they're publishing through select journals, often with ghostwriting from academics, and they're providing the short-term data and they're just telling the physicians, hey, this works. And what they're doing is they are overvaluing the response to these drugs. The physicians, who are not experts, most of them in this, in this area, are doing quick screenings. Someone's coming to them and saying, my mood's impacted. I feel depressed. They're writing the script. And they believe that they're following evidence-based medicine. And until we get into... Uh, into the primary care settings and try to correct this. Um, and until we inform the public and parents who are getting these scripts for their children, it's going to continue to increase because everything within that realm is pushed by the pharmaceutical industry, including um, continuing education uh, seminars mm -hmm. uh, because every licensed physician requires those continuing education seminars. They're just, it's just pushed by, by big pharma. And so um, it should be eye-opening. And um, I hope that answers your two questions, Carl. I mean, we can even get into this in, in more depth in a, in a later podcast. But I think what is happening in our society right now, and we're trying to bring attention to this, is how the medical establishment and the pharmaceutical industry have aligned to be able to, uh, you know, increase sales. And we're the victims of it. We, as a culture, we as people are, are victims of it. Yeah, and Carl, uh, just uh, from my point of view, I actually can tell you that I had experienced this and I was prescribed Zoloft. And the best way I can explain what it did to me was a mind muzzle. It was, you know, just putting a, something over my mind, not allowing me to express my emotions. I only stayed with it for a few weeks and then, thankfully had the support of family who actually liked me better with emotional reactions versus non-emotional reactions. So, um, I went through that process. I had a, um, sorry, Sean, to interrupt you there, but I had a, a young lady in my in a therapy session this week and she gave me permission just to tweet out a little bit of the dialogue. And this is teenager still. And, and she said, when I was working with my psychiatrist, it's like almost any feeling that I had, it's almost like it was wrong and they had to increase the dose. So somewhere along the line, this belief came that experiencing emotions are a symptom of some illness and the drugs 
is designed to kind of numb that out as if it would increase your quality of life. Yeah, it's like those feelings aren't normal is, is the message that's being communicated. Uh, I want to touch on a couple of things because you used a placebo effect. Um, and off the top of my head, I remember uh, maybe it came up in one of our discussions, 30% might be what the normal placebo effect is. Right, right. And have you used, um, you also apply that to the work you do as a psychologist, that any clinician, no matter if you are where you are in your career, maybe early on, you would see a 30% um, positive outcome, which you're basically saying like, hey, that's just placebo effect of just anything. And then you strive to exceed 30% in terms of the outcome measures that can you just touch on that a little bit in terms of you're applying it not only to medication, but also um, non-medication therapy. therapy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you can apply the placebo effect to, to therapy that there's going to be a percentage of people who are going to make improvements mm-hmm. based just by believing that the therapy is helping them. Yeah. And I think when you design a research study or you're measuring outcomes in clinical practice, you want to make sure two things. One, you're exceeding that placebo effect with mm-hmm. your positive mm-hmm. outcomes, but you also want to be able to study the long-term effects. Mm-hmm. So if you're working with someone who's in a depressive episode, for example, and you meet with them one time or you do a couple few cognitive behavioral treatments and there's a dramatic improvement right away, you don't want to just kind of say, all right, I'll see you. You want to, you want to make sure that that improvement lasts over the year to your follow-ups. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that really the therapy is building those skills that they can respond more effectively to the challenges that life is going to bring, not just that initial response to meeting with you provides them some hope or belief that they're better, which will be short-term, right? The next adverse event that's going to occur, they respond in the same way previously that would have led to depressive episodes. So you're building your resilience over time because depressive episodes, you can't avoid them, right? I mean, it's normal for anybody in their life to enter a period of of, uh, feeling sad or, or, or being depressed. It's just how you've learned over years to respond differently to that. And then I think you can avoid a depressive episode, right? Um, What you can avoid are the challenges and the pain that life is going to bring. Mm -hmm. And so the goal is to respond to those situations in ways that allow you to continue to move forward in life. Like Winston Winston Churchill used to say, if you find yourself in hell, keep walking, right? (laughs) It's almost this acceptance and normalization that life is going to be really difficult. And then you keep walking and you respond and you learn and you can still experience like the joy in in life that exists and not be subjected to a, a depressive episode that impairs your ability to live fully. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to the second question. This, I believe, would come from a, a Twitter uh, response. So um, what do you think is the most common psychiatric tendency or diagnosis for psychiatrists and psychologists? This is from at Adrian Bai, at Adrian Bai. So thank you, Adrian. I uh, really do appreciate the Twitter comment. I, we have to split this up. Uh, psychologists and psychiatrists are two distinct fields. Uh, often, too many people just lump them together as if they're the same, and many don't even know the difference. So modern, psych- modern psychiatry 
Uh, they are physicians and uh, predominantly in today's healthcare system, they are um, prescribing drugs. That is, their, that is their treatment. And it's a medical model, biomedical model predominantly. A lot of what we're critical of here on the podcast is that model. Uh, I've been very open that I, that I think it has harmed society. You know, it's a healthcare specialty that has not advanced the health and well-being of, of humans. Um, now, psychologists are a, a different specialty. Now, in a lot of ways, they have become, I am a psychologist myself, influenced by this medical model. So the development of these categorical diagnoses from a DSM perspective, as if there's these discrete, separate, identifiable medical conditions, and then we can treat it. We can treat it with therapy or therapies. And so psychologists are evaluation, testing, and uh, the treatment of psychological, emotional conditions through, through therapy. Now, both are prone to tremendous errors within the system. I'm going to start with psychologists first. If you want to talk about probably the most common overdiagnosed condition for psychologists, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. My goodness. I, there's usually not a psychologist around that doesn't say, well, they, you know, they have ADHD, like it's a, like a diagnosis. And it's really problematic because we're talking about attention and focus and uh, attention and focus are uh, impaired by many conditions. Just think about what it means to be anxious. Think about what it means to be depressed. Think about how our brain can be trained through video games and, and multiple stimuli at one time. So it's almost a, it's a sham diagnosis that's put out there by, the, by the, uh, that medical establishment, Psychiatry Alliance. It's driven countless people to drugs. But it's still just kind of, you know, promoted today, even in clinical practice. Anyone who's struggling uh, within school or focusing on things with their job, regardless of, you know, what the cause is, boom, they, they have that ADHD diagnosis in there. The other thing we're, ta we're talking about here is the problem with the diagnosis to begin with. In order for clients to be able to use their medical insurance, we have to, we have to provide them with a diagnosis. Yep. So if somebody comes in, with mood problems, right, which is primarily what's going to come into outpatient practice, boom, they're right there. They're going to be uh, assigned like a, depress a depression diagnosis. So psychologists are you know, prone to overdiagnosing depression too. Anyone that comes in with a mood condition, diagnosing them with, with depression. And so it just kind of increases the prevalence rate of these, of these conditions. Psychiatry, on the other hand, have created an epidemic of bipolar disorder okay there's no doubt in my mind you know it's it's kind of the way that psychiatry has legitimized themselves uh, in the medical field is being able to treat manic depressive illness and what's fascinating with statistics if you look back in history and I'm, I'm someone who's really interested in history because we're all vulnerable to biases about staying in the time period that we're in. And we're so influenced by media and news and education and so forth. But before the pre-lithium um, kind of era, before the drug era for bipolar, it was really, really rare. Somewhere between 
one in 5,000 to 2,000 people in a population were diagnosed with bipolar. And they had really good long-term functional outcomes. Like something like 75 to 90% of people would have one episode and recover. The difference today, medicated bipolar prevalence rates, one in 20 to one in 50. Mm. And the long-term functional outcomes, around 33%. So basically, when I say that I think psychiatry has created harm, what we're saying is that our outcomes have worsened since they've, since they've become aligned with the pharmaceutical industry and tried to, to treat everything with drugs. So that's really, really important to know. Um, additionally, a new diagnosis was developed. I can't remember which DSM. It's called, now it's called bipolar 2. You know, it's, you know, this idea of like it's bipolar light, you know, so anyone who has this like emotion dysregulation, which is quite normal, you know, emotion dysregulation means someone can have an outburst, you know, someone could be feeling irritable. Um, now that's like this concept of hypomania, which is almost impossible to really define. And again, just drives more people to the diagnosis. So uh, thank you at Adrian by, you know, psych- psychiatrists are overdiagnosed bipolar Anyone who's psychiatric, psychiatrically hospitalized, I almost say, like in our in our community, if you're if you're psychiatrically hospitalized, you almost walk out with a bipolar diagnosis and uh, and a prescription. Yeah, I remember we touched on this in a in a previous discussion about the the rising diagnosis of bipolar disorder over the last like twenty years. And I was watching um, television last night, and of course, I see a commercial. If you've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, this shot is once a month. And I was just like, God. And and as as someone that's worked in, in marketing, I always look at like what's your addressable audience. And I I believe the percentage of people that are bipolar um, are, is probably very, very, very small. Rare. So, very rare. And and I know how expensive television advertising is. And I was like, is, uh, why would you spend money on television advertising? Because you're wasting probably like 98 99% of your exposure on people that don't need this drug. So it just, to me, it just doesn't make sense. And I feel like the marketing actually may not be going toward the adults. I feel like the marketing might be going to the parents who have children that are experiencing highs and lows. A generation and, of uh, customers, yeah. right? So it goes back to how do people talk about their emotions? So people who like, you know what it's like to be a teenager, you know, with hormone changes, you know, one day you're sad, the next day, you know, you're around your friends, you're really happy. Now they come in the office and say, I think I'm bipolar. Why? I was really happy around my friends last night. And when I wasn't, you know, I was in my room, I was really depressed. So things like that. Mm. Another interesting story. I don't know if you remember, uh, obviously Seinfeld. So it was, I saw an episode, uh, not too long ago, crazy Joe Dabola. Remember that episode? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it's, it's Jerry. This is in the early 90s. This is Jerry Seinfeld saying, he's got a chemical imbalance. He's got a, he's, you know, he should be on drugs or something, you know? He's crazy. You know? And for those keeping score, that is voice number eight for Roger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That is his Seinfeld voice. <laughs> Not very good, but... <laughs> Not bad. But the chemical imbalance was thrown right out there. You know, this is... If people want to know how it becomes influenced into, into, mm. into a generation of people, it's, it's right there. It's placed on one of the most popular television shows at that time, one of the most popular television shows of all time because it's on syndication. So the idea that if someone's acting in a certain way, they're imbalanced. Yeah. 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 Now on to the next question. 
Yeah, I'll ask this one. Uh, this is coming from at Laura Rosen Cohen. What are the most effective and least frustrating tactics or ways to attempt to deprogram hysterically irrational <laughs> people with COVID psychosis? I feel like that's an attack on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you yell at them and call them dangerously naive. <laughs> is there a pill for dangerously naive? <laughs> Boy, it's, it's such a challenging question because I think a, a lot of us have uh, just struggled with irrationality. Um, like some things just don't make sense. Like people are just screaming for a, a vaccine and a booster shot and then they get really, really sick. And, uh, you know, you see people getting COVID even though they've been vaxxed and, and boosted. And they still believe that the answer to society is continuing getting these, these vaccinations. And it's really, it's confusing because you, you feel like you can no longer engage in, in critical analysis and critical thinking. And we, as a, as a podcast, when we, when we have our conversations about who we are, you might wonder why we have some of these topics like the public education system, or we talk about extremes in, in thinking, because we are concerned about how passive conformity uh, leads to just obedience without critical thought, and then its impact on us as a nation and us as, uh, you know, just our individual rights. And one of the things that is really, really important is that we have certain values. One of them is medical freedom. And for good reason, we believe that each individual person should have the right to informed consent and then choose what they do with their own bodies. If we don't have medical freedom, if we don't choose, if we don't have the choice of what, of what to put into our own bodies, and we're and our and freedom in society is at risk if we don't follow the rules, just begin to think about the implications of that for what's being created. I respect anyone's right to choose whatever they do with their own bodies, and that's the most important thing. It is your right. So if you believe that an intervention like a vaccine is something that protects you, then you have our 100% support. But the idea that that intervention has a positive impact on everybody as if we're all the same, well, then we're far away from what the scientific data reflects. So the 70-year-old with multiple comorbidities getting a booster to to increase antibodies for a pre for a period of time um, it's not the same as a five-year-old getting a vaccine or an 18-year-old healthy young people and when people are when medical doctors are getting censored and the data out there is being misrepresented then we see it as a uh, attack on things that we fundamentally hold close and dear to uh, to having the lives that we think are are necessary in order to be free, to have sound mental health, to have purpose, and that's and that's why we we have these these topics. So unfortunately, I think for us there has to be a degree of acceptance that there are going to be a percentage of people who are just obedient to authority without critical thought, trying to engage them in debate is probably just going to frustrate you. 
and and listen, I'm talk I'm talking from personal experience because it doesn't matter, right? You can read the studies, you can you can talk about how you just got sick with COVID, even though you were boosted, and they'll just come back and say, well, it would have been worse. And listen, the pharmaceutical industry, government, they know that you can never answer that question, right? It's tapping into that fear and uncertainty. And fear can be used and will be used against all of us. And so there's going to be a degree of acceptance that there's going to be a percentage of people out there that are just going to follow the rules. Or, you know, they're going to... We went through a period of time where people would just post publicly, I'm vaccinated, right? Mm -hmm. That's that virtue signaling. It's the I voted sticker. I'm part of the group. Accept me. Don't reject me out of the group. And hopefully, like, this podcast is probably engaging people who are much more independently minded, or as Sean would say, the... um, What's the persuadable middle? The persuadable middle, yeah. right? So, so people who are, are just in that middle, who are who are reasonable, who probably don't sway to any one political affiliation, and, and they just want to make the best decisions for their themselves and their families, and and hopefully that we're providing people some alternative viewpoints and information, things to think about, and that they can step back and and say, hey, these are reasonable guys talking about reasonable things. They're looking at data. They care about people. And they're supporting your right to make an informed decision. I mean, I do have actually a specific tactic that you can use um, when you are talking to an individual and they're not willing to listen. Just question and and empathize with them. But if you constantly question and you just sit there and um, you're calm about it, eventually I think people start to open their eyes when they answer their own questions They'll come to one that they can't answer. And then when they do, they start to kind of change their, you know, they're they're never going to change, but they start to see your point of view. That's that's worked for me with some of the conversations I've had with people. Calm, cool, collected. I agree. Um, And as someone who, um, I don't know, is that persuadable middle? I think there comes a point where you need to step back. Um, If you are that individual and you don't know where you're going with things at some point you need to apply a little bit of common sense, right? So in Los Angeles right now, the um, gyms are open like health clubs in order to get in, you need to provide a proof of vaccination and then you need to wear a mask and keep your distance. Now applying common sense would say, well, a, vaccin- a vaccination is supposed to protect me and protect others. If everybody that is in the health club is vaccinated, why do I need to continue to wear a mask while I'm running on a treadmill or I'm doing an elliptical? And if that mask starts drifting down below the nose and they come over and they tell you, mask up, mask up, at some point you need to question, like, well, what was the point? You know, we all did this to return to a life of normalcy. And now you're telling me that this is the new normal that I have to continue to get shots every six months and wear a mask. I, 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 to me, it's just at some point you need to go like, well, what the hell? Well, this is, these are the tactics that have been used on societies in history. This is how uh, China has become China. This is how the communist regime has been able to, through fear, been able to get an entire nation of, of people 
to be obedient and to follow the rules. These tactics are not new. Fear will be used against you. And so it's interesting. You're talking about a gym that's most likely a privately owned industry, mm-hmm. but they're so scared of breaking the rules. Being shut down. Yeah. yeah. So it, it common sense doesn't matter anymore. And when common sense doesn't matter anymore, uh, we are one step closer to losing those freedoms. Common sense has to matter. But at, the, at, this, at this juncture, the state of Pennsylvania no longer has an emergency and we're still having private businesses follow some sort of mandate that was, you know, last winter, for example, you had the emergency situation where you had a government saying you must do this or we'll, you know, we'll take your license, for example, bars and restaurants. Mm-hmm. That no longer exists. It hasn't existed for several months in the state of Pennsylvania. So when yeah. you go into a place and you still see, you know, these in the, these these places all saying you have to wear a mask, you have to do this. I'm like, you don't have to do that. No, you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's a- can I, let's let's remove COVID from this conversation and, and apply. Uh, our last conversation was about um, obedience in schools and, and fear. And I was thinking back, and I wish we would have touched on it. During that period of the Cold War, remember in schools, they would do drills. Mm-hmm. In the event of a nuclear attack, get underneath your desk. Yeah. Would that protect you <laughs> in a nuclear attack? Of course not. No. Why get under your desk? Fear conditioning. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, boy, you could deep dive into this from uh, like Disney's role in this too. Bambi, very young age, getting, a, you know, having a, your mother killed. You know, there's so many things. <laughs> there's a recurring theme in most Disney movies about losing a parent. Yeah. They're interesting. This, got, this has to be, you know, another podcast. But it follows an emotional arc. I mean, the thing to storytelling is right. I mean, but it's developmentally uh, harmful, right? If, when you, when you want to look at a, a country of, of anxious people, you can start beginning to, to, to like trace some of this stuff back. We should just, I want to, I want to tell a story about that. Cause um, our sister was out um, over, was, was it the, was it the holidays? No, it was um, around she, Thanksgiving. She's sensitive to being brought up on this. Podcast. Yeah, I know. But this is, this, this is about <laughs> I think her. She son. used the word triggered <laughs> <laughs> yesterday talking to us. But she was, she was listening to one of our podcasts and, and we love yeah. you, Lindsay, by the yeah. way. If you're out there. <laughs> so she was on the airplane flying back uh, to her home, sitting next to her son, who is uh, four years old. And um, they were watching The Land Before Time, I believe, which is the movie about uh, dinosaurs. dinosaurs. And as her son was watching it, there was the moment where the mom was, I believe, killed. And he started crying. And he couldn't go on. He didn't want to watch it anymore because he felt so emotional about that and he was relating it to losing his own mother. But then at one point he said, I want to, I want to watch that movie. I want to watch it through. So that definitely does affect children. Like we might not think it as adults. We're like, Oh, it's just a movie, you know, you know, just, just watch it. It's okay. It's not real, but there's definitely something happening there. I agree with Roger here. Well, there's a, (laughs) You know, a lot of historical, uh, you know, I don't know if they're books or where they've talked about the CIA and their alignment with Hollywood industry and how certain things have been. I mean, every every country has propaganda. So, I mean, we had propaganda during the, you know, 
throughout our, our history as a country, I mean, how else are you going to get young men and women to go to war? You know, unless there's a strong belief in that you're fighting for something. Mm-hmm. And people don't want to acknowledge how purposeful some of this conditioning is. And because you don't know any better, you know, you just grow up under it and you accept certain things to be true. This is a great future podcast is that we can begin to talk about some of these things that are, that are in depth, but Mm -hmm. what governments do in order to condition a population, you know, that's, there's too many of that in, in, uh, in Hollywood and Disney, you know, in children's cartoons to say it's a coincidence. Why else would you provoke the fear of loss of a parent and the anxieties in, in the children at that developmental stage? Yeah. Yep. All right, let's move on to the next uh, question here. Um, so <clears throat> this one comes from at Irish Rose 58, Twitter. How to live as a survivor of sexual assault and poly drugging by a psychiatrist while the media, schools, politicians, etc., promote mental health care, psych drugs, and anti-stigma campaigns. As a psychiatric survivor, this terrifies me. Thank you, Irish Rose. Um, it's a great question. It's why we chose it. First of all, I love that you use the word survivor because um, that's the most in, in, important use of language right now. Instead of the idea of a, a victim, you identify as a survivor. And when anyone's a survivor, you often ask yourself, okay, what, what have you learned? How can you continue to move forward and create a life worth living? And one of the reasons we are extremely critical of the modern day mental health care system is because of the use of the words disorder or ill, mentally ill. If you are a survivor of a traumatic incident, whether it's a sexual violence or physical violence, abuse, neglect, your reactions to those events are not an illness. That post-traumatic response is evolutionarily adaptive And there's nothing more normal than to be on guard, hypervigilant, and anxious about facing a dangerous situation again. And that could include your subconscious playing things out while you're sleeping, you know, nightmares, um, overgeneralized fear. It's all, it's about survival. Now, the good news is, is that we have really effective treatments for people who have survived traumatic incidents the body can heal we can heal we're incredibly resilient as human beings it's built into our dna the problem with polypharm drugging is it actually interferes with that process the emotional experience and talking about and feeling Intensely, even, the emotions associated with that traumatic incident are part of the healing process and building resiliency. Also, in order to survive and continue to move on with your life, you have to be able to live freely again, even though you were at risk and something um, potentially dangerous and violent actually happened to you. Your ability to distinguish what is safe and what is not safe. Yeah, it is extremely painful and invalidating for victims of abuse, neglect, and violence to be called ill, to be drugged, to be told the emotions that they're feeling 
are uh, a symptom of an illness. And so how do you survive in that? You tell your story. And that's one of the great things about um, social media now is that voices cannot be silenced. And in podcasts like this, we're not going to silence your voice. We're going to talk. We're going to share your stories. We're going to talk about it. Um, and hopefully that your social support network and the people around you um, love you and care about you and, uh, you know, help you deal with some of the, the emotions that come up when, um, when your experience is being invalidated, when it's being called an illness. And there are campaigns out there that promote this idea of being mentally ill and as, and, and as if there's a, a, a drug for it, that anti-stigma is really, you know, a code word for, hey, let's drive you to, to more psychiatric drugs and let's increase the sale of those drugs trying to create long-term customers. In, um, in school right now, this just kind of brings up the idea of trauma. And I think I told you that that's the big push in public schools when you have in-services and you are you know, um, beginning of the year, um, talk to, talk a little bit about that being kind of something that's being included in schools now. Hmm. Um, teachers learning about how to, uh, cope with students and trauma, not really being trained how to deal with them. But when we see it, talk, talk a little bit about trauma. It's a really good question. And, it, and it's first of all, you have to, you know, identify what trauma is. And that's my biggest concern with what they're rolling out in, in the school systems, because a little bit of information can be really dangerous. You know, someone like me dedicates my entire adult life to understanding this. Teachers are designed to teach. So you start putting them in positions of trying to identify and respond to what they believe or they're told to believe is, is trauma mm -hmm. becomes really problematic. And since we do believe in the inherent resiliency of uh, all human beings, the overuse of the word trauma is problematic to the point where we have generations of people believing that you're traumatized if you have a different opinion, if you're offended. People believing they're traumatized when their parents got divorced. Believing you're traumatized if you were bullied in school. Traumatized if there was a breakup. Things that are you know, quite normal and people adapt real easily to. It's part of that fragilizing of an entire generation of, of, of people. So it's very difficult for me who might be working with a survivor of sexual assault, rape, or a veteran who, uh, you know, who was in combat and saw, uh, saw incredible violence and death to compare that to, you know, somebody saying I'm traumatized because you said this, right? you know, so, and so it, it becomes really challenging. I, I personally believe that um, schools are getting too involved in, in raising of our children. We don't want our, Is that our pur purposeful. Is there intent? I, I do believe that. I do too. I know. And, and that's part of that indoctrination kind of process. I, you know, strong, strong families are really, really important. And, you know, my personal values are my values for my kid. I don't need the value of a, of a government school system to be um, provided to my, my children. I want them to be able to teach my children how to critically think, analyze, and to push them academically. Um, I don't think everything should be government run down. So, uh, like, that, 
the school shouldn't be the place to get everything. You know, that's concerning to me from a political perspective, but you know, Mm -hmm. I digress, I digress on that. But the thing is, you know, trauma, you know, we should be able to understand what it, what is a definition of, of, of trauma having awareness of it is really important, right? Like we talked about this in our last podcast. We want our teachers to be able to understand our kids are going to come into the school environment going through different things. And we want just respect and compassion is all you need. Uh, Regarding trauma, some of those examples that you throw out, um, if they're just a single instance, you might say, hey, listen, that's common. You have an emotional response. But can a single situation, when repeated over a long period of time, then become trauma? Yeah, that's a great statement. Um, are you, if you're talking about the culmination effect of uh, like repeated uh, traumatic incidents, abuse, neglect, then that is uh, you know very clearly a risk factor. Yeah, I was for thinking greater um, mental health problems. Part of me was thinking like uh, like bullying. Like in a high school situation, somebody calling you names every single day. I don't know that that's the yeah. trauma that I'm, I, I, I don't know. I don't know that that's, I, I think do you, do you trauma's remember, on a spectrum. Do right? you remember sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and somewhere along the line, it came like, you know, words harm you, right? So it's like, we've kind of, we've kind of negatively impacted coping in a certain, in, in a way by, by taking that mindset, even though we want everybody to treat others with respect and you want a safe environment in schools, like without a doubt, like that's something we support and, and a culture like that should be developed. I just don't think it has to be done by um, highlighting the fact that if someone calls someone's, someone a name, that that is a traumatic incident and that is akin to other traumatic incidents. I want to bring one more thing up in that Irish Rose, maybe you can uh, get back to us on it. But as a teacher in Pennsylvania, I'm not sure that this was a national thing. There was something passed called Act 31 in 2014, which made all teachers mandatory reporters. And what that means is if we see, if, if there's evidence in our own judgment of whether or not a child is abused, um, either at home or if they are um, they write something, for example, and, and we see signs of that, that we have to mandatorily report that to the state. I'm wondering, I want to get your take on this, Roger, because to me, I don't know that it's a bad idea in terms of the I- overall idea of it. I get that. But think about what you're doing to those teachers. They become mandatory reporters, and many of them fearful if they... Um, I guess the misdi- sometimes there's going to be misdiagnosis because of the mandatory reporting. Am I wrong? No, you're right. I mean, it's it's challenging for me to to it depends to have a strong opinion on this, you know, in either direction because we're talking about the protection of children. Yeah, and uh, often, um, you know, teachers are on the front lines here, so they'll they'll will they will receive information that would lead them to suspect that a child could be being you know abused or neglected. And I think when we talk about the, you know, a, a society that's compassionate and and protects children, then we need to have some of those safeguards in place. Like we're not all or nothing here. I'm not all or nothing. Right. right? It doesn't mean the elimination of all, you know, of teachers from the the private lives of of the individual. There are situations where kids will come in and disclose abuse, or we have information that a child is being abused, and there has to be an avenue for uh, a, a, a teacher or anyone who's working 
with children to be able to make a report or, you know, talk with somebody whose job is to investigate those things. So I'm in favor of that. The point you bring up is a, is a really good one, is the impact it has on the teacher. Remember, right. a little bit of information can be really, really dangerous. And we talked about last week about teachers seeing themselves as the gatekeepers in society. And so, again, that increases the vulnerability for somebody making the wrong decision. But hopefully, you know, the safeguards and the agencies and the, the social workers and the people who are going to do those investigations are well trained and they can uh, they can be able to investigate that without creating much harm and hopefully be able to identify those real situations where a child is being abused. Sure. I was reading a little bit about this um, as it applies to psychology and how psychologists um, generally push back against the reporting because I think when someone seeks out mental health care, and Roger, you can weigh in on this, that there needs to be a safe place for people to communicate thoughts. Um, and thoughts are not actions. And sometimes people may think things and say things in a session. And it needs to be a place where people um, aren't fearful of being reported to uh, a police or something like that. Um, that sometimes it's just what people are thinking, not actually going to do. Yeah, which is, well, which is... Which is different. Like yeah. if, if you're a mandated reporter, I'm a mandated reporter. You have to have a reasonable um, kind of suspicion yep. that a child is being abused or has been abused. That's different. I think we were talking about um, the private rights of the patient who mm -hmm. comes into the mental health treatment is the idea of like, of being able to strip them of their own freedom and being able to hospitalize them. Mm. Right. So being able to determine like I can take over control of you because you are a danger to yourself is where we start to blur the lines. Right. Yeah. And then we when we look at some of the data going into the hospital system psychiatrically actually increases the likelihood of a suicide event. And there's adverse consequences to doing that. Um, and we don't want to create a system where someone who really is thinking about suicide is afraid that that's going to be misconstrued and then they lose their own rights. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but I think really strong professionals understand that and are really effective in working with their clients. The problem is it's everyone else. It's the blow average. It's the untrained. It's the average clinician who's more fear-based and that's about them protecting their license. Oh my God, what if a client ends their life under my watch. It's their fears that drives inappropriate intervention. So to the teacher, um, that is there fear there that by not reporting something that could be um, something that's happening at home? It, does I, that I, exist? Yeah, I think that's the consequence for some teachers. I do. Mm -hmm. I think that maybe they'll report um, because they have the fear that if they don't report something, they're going to be in trouble. They have a fear of losing their job. That's mm -hmm. why I brought it up. Yeah. I, I, and I said, I do think overall, the idea is certainly a good one, but I'm not sure that everybody in education is trained yeah. um, enough or we spent enough time on, on learning those, um, those signs, those, those things. But gotcha. all right. Next question. This comes from uh, at unfun feminist. How does one best recover from depression brought upon by events outside one's control, such as the COVID pandemic? Thank you for the question. I think this was really an interesting one because 
most situations are outside our control. And so and that's the hard, that's the, that's what's difficult about the human experience. What is in our control? Mm-hmm. Our responses, right? We can't control what happens to us. We control our reactions or responses to us, to what happens to us. So um, how best to recover from depression is to acknowledge that, I think, first and foremost. And um, remember, and I think this is really important, is to really understand the range of reactions that you can have in response to adverse events or problems. And I think in really good therapy, a therapist, psychologist begins to be acutely aware of how a person is responding to the challenges that exist in, in their life and analyzes how that can be creating more emotional pain and suffering. And so do we talk enough about what it means to be human? You know, I, I, I don't think we normalize the challenges that exist in this life. We're here for a relatively short amount of time you know, 80, 90 years, if, if you're lucky, if we're lucky. Yeah. Right. So it's a short amount of time. We're all going to die. That is given. But so many people's fear ends up controlling how they live in this life. And often when we look on the continuum of emotions, fear precedes depression. Fear is the strongest indicator and your response to it of whether you're going to create a life of value, purpose, and one that is worth living. There is no doubt that we have to learn to walk alongside fear, live with it, in order to accomplish the goals and live the life that we're designed to live. Regardless, I mean, if we all just step back and say, what makes life worth living? You know, to me, it's it's love, it's family, it's friendship. It's um, creating experiences. It's helping others. It's um, being able to be entertained, experience joy, have fun, be with friends. And all those things do require you to face fears that exist in your life. Can you, if you're so afraid of loss, you can never love. Um, if, If you're so afraid of being rejected, you cannot be free and spontaneous and engage socially. If you're so afraid of failing, you're not going to be able to take risks, whether that is, uh, you know, within your own profession or personally. So there is a yin and a yang, a dialectical kind of balance to all this. You have to experience one to be able to experience the benefit of the other. To, to really feel joy, I think you also have to be willing to feel sadness. The one thing um, I think we should point out is we don't know where she, this, uh, this particular listener lives. So each country has different uh, rules regarding the pandemic in terms of restrictions, which I think is point. equally important. The reason why you're as passionate as you are is because you recognize that some of those restrictions that have been put in place gets in the way of people having and pursuing a life worth living um, and actually may put them in a depressive state by controlling them, keeping them alone shutting them off from society, um, not being able to connect with friends and family. 
all those things to me really um, paint a picture of who you are. And I even use this to, you know, have that conversation with our sister um, about the what was triggering her um, in an earlier podcast was like, I was like, hey, you got to remember who Roger is, what he's seeing. He's on the front line. He's experiencing the worst of what's happening right now regarding uh, the shutdown and people being cut off from friends and family, which is why he's really passionate about it. It may not be affecting you. It may not be affecting me, but he's seeing the, uh, the repercussions of these type of controls and why it needs to be stopped immediately. Yeah, I was really uh, impacted by the COVID shutdowns. I never stopped working with my clients. I did not go to telehealth. I really enjoy the personal connections that I have with my clients. And so I was here every day sitting in front of people and I saw the impact. Our practice saw the impact. This podcast is a direct consequence of that. That's right. right? So it benefit it, of benefit. <laughs> so, I mean, it goes back to what do we have control of? I couldn't, really, I had a really hard time emotionally kind of tolerating what was happening and having no voice, mm-hmm. right? And then day in and day out, really seeing how people's mental health was deteriorating, especially young people. So I had to do something, you know, and, and uh, a lot of where we are today, getting Sean here from Los Angeles, engaging with you, Kelly, um, somebody I respect and you and I have similar views on this. We both wanted to do something. This is the way we dealt with that pain, with that struggle. And so that's a, that's a, a great example. I think we, don't, we can't control what happens to us. Mm-hmm. We can control our reaction to mm-hmm. it. Right. Good point. All right, next question comes from Michael. I believe it was an email from Michigan. And this question is, many of your points of view can be considered right-wing. Do you consider yourself right-wing politically? You know, fascinating question because I was at a party over the summer and somebody was talking to another person about our podcast. Uh, This was probably in August. We just had a few episodes and he just described it as this right-wing podcast. And I've never considered myself right-wing ever. Um, And if you listen to some of our previous episodes, especially when we talk about dialectical thinking Mm -hmm. or avoiding extremes in thinking, I've always seen myself as independent, maybe in the political middle, Uh, maybe with a strong libertarian bent. Um, So I was socially liberal in a lot of ways. I really did, you know, still do. We talk about the individual rights um, from the coercion, control, and uh, limitation of those rights on the individual. And it doesn't matter whether that is your sexual orientation uh, or your, your rights uh, as a female to your own health care. You, you can have values. You can, you can have beliefs. Like morally, I can have beliefs. But from a political standpoint, it is, I, I believe in limited government. And government, uh, the rights of the individual should be protected from that of the government, Right. Uh, and that's traditionally a, a liberal perspective, right? Whether it's uh, you know the the rights of the minority group, um, the individual rights. Somehow, along the line, we've been continuously divided as a country into two categories. On a on a, another spectrum, I might be kind of conservative financially, um, and fiscally conservative. 
So they, they, it's, it's, it's difficult and has been difficult for me to find footing in the United States when, we, when, we get, when we're divided. And what's interesting, what has happened after the, the pandemic is everything we knew to be of two political parties has been flipped. The Democrat Party has become, quote unquote, the, the left with larger government, larger control and limitations of rights of the individual. Going, uh, trying to transform the American people from one of a group of people who've, who've come here, immigrated here, almost everyone immigrated here. Uh, Sean and I are only a few generations. Both sides of our family came from Ireland. And in Ireland, uh, it, it, it's under the control of the British people, like fighting for independence. And that was our ancestry. And one of the reasons why, you know, um, our our family immigrated to the to United States. I think somewhere that's like deep in, in our blood. And so the American society being transformed into that collectivist idea, which is, uh, you know, just code word for larger government control over the people. And so we've been standing up against those ideas. If that's right wing, uh, then call me right wing, I, I, I suppose. But it, I get, I mean, we're against larger scale government. That doesn't mean it's in, it's black or white. I do believe regulations and laws to protect people's individual well-being or rights are important, especially in, in terms of like medical interventions and informed consent. Um, so I think the, the government has a responsibility to the people. They work for the people. And um, in, a, in a true uh, like republic or democracy, um, they're supposed to, the, those who represent us in government are supposed to represent their, uh, their constituency. And Michael, I work in education, which is predominantly going to be liberal minds. And I think I went to limited government almost instantaneously when I became a teacher, when I saw how many people were just thinking alike without questioning anything. So I'm, I'm a big person. I'm a big questioner. And I found that, um, because I do that, people consider me, as you are mentioning, right wing. I was joking around with the uh, with the guys here. I texted um, them and I said, radically genuine. Our new model should be radically genuine. The alt-right way to go. <laughs> because it's funny how now that you have a voice on this podcast and you're just bringing up things that you would have normally brought up at parties or with your friends anyway, I've always questioned. But now that we have an audience, they're just kind of they're, they're looking at us and saying things like, well, you're right wing or you're alt right. And I'm like, that's just, that's not what I am. I, I don't believe in uh, massive government uh, control. I, I think that we should be making our own decisions. Obviously I'm a huge advocate for critical thinking, which I believe has been purposely taken out of the educational system um, in terms of curriculum. And so from my viewpoint, I, I grew up in a blue collar family. Um, I certainly can say that I'm, I have conservative values but I don't like when um, big government gets too big. That's my, my big take. And it, by saying that you're alt-right, that's trying to devalue you. So it's right. that idea of saying, you know, there's misinformation and, in, and people who are on the extreme ends are, are dangerous to you as, a, as an individual. I can't think anyone would listen to us and say we're dangerous to you as a person. Um, but they certainly could get labeled as alternative right, not taking any one comment and being able to analyze it, just broadly labeling somebody to make them dangerous. And that is what large scale institutions do. 
And that's what we have to protect against in where our culture is going, is that our American society is less democratic than you, than you think. It's, it's an oligarchy. It's being run by large companies because they have the power to buy the, the politician to represent their financial interests. And they're owned. They become owned. And that is something that um, I think is a, is a real threat to the American way of life and the system as we know it is how large the corporation can be in influencing the American people. So we have to kind of stand up as a group. There's, there's lots of us out there, right? I, <laughs> we have to be able to resist and we have to be able to demand accurate information and demand our individual rights in all situations. Don't give in. You cannot follow rules for rules sake. Let me touch on this. Cause I think, um, I agree with what you're, you're both saying. And, you know, I always, I always hate the idea of, of labeling something either this or that, right? Cause you immediately then discount it as it's not for me because those guys view things this way. And, and, I see us more as a discussion. Our discussions are really taking a critical approach to a number of, of topics. P- politics aside, we're just talking about things that are happening in society and culture. And if you can list out a number of views and points, including data, and have a general conversation that takes a dialectical approach, looking at both angles, and I, I try and make that and I think I've done an okay job with it, making my perspective come through um, and questioning the perspective of, of others. But um, what I really want this to be uh, and continue to be is, is really about applying critical thought to a number of topics. And this came up in, in our previous uh, the, uh, podcast about um, how to avoid extremes and thinkings. And we were talking about bias, right? And one of, uh, one of the criticisms that I heard from a listener was that it was a great discussion. You talked about a number of things, but then you ended it with in the gray area. Like, what do you mean in the gray area? That, that doesn't, you mean be in the middle? And, and I think we didn't do a good job explaining it. So maybe we can touch on that and maybe it'll address this question as well. Yeah, I think he interpreted that as meaning that we didn't have any strong opinions on things either way, right? There was no right, there was no wrong. And that is not what we were trying to communicate. Often you can accept multiple truths at the same time. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to prevent yourself from being pushed to an extreme position or just to a team or a group, you have to be able to acknowledge the truth in the alternative point of view. And if you can try to seek out the truth in the alternative point of view, what that does is it begins to strengthen your own beliefs, right? If you can understand it, why someone might think that way, understand where their truth lies and exists, well, then two things are going to happen. You're either going to adopt maybe a new viewpoint from information that you didn't otherwise have, or you're just going to strengthen your own because you're very aware of what the counter argument could be. And at other times, there's going to be, I guess, place for agreement where we're both saying the same thing in a diff- using different language. And it's, we're being pushed to the opposite end because we've self-identified in some way with a particular group. 
So Michael from Michigan, I just have a funny story about this with the, with the right wing. Um, I used to be on Twitter a lot as an educator and then, you know, I had quite a few followers, but then I, I just stopped because Twitter was getting a little strange. But, um, I looked at after the first few episodes, I looked at under Rogers and he had just started, um, growing his base. And after the first episode or two, he was getting attacked, um, because some of these ideas and they're, they're truthful, but I just was like, I looked at my wife and I go, oh my God, are we the baddies? Are we the bad guys now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, one final point about that. And uh, when it comes to politics and, you know, the right wing and the left wing, uh, I believe those two groups are trying to tell people what to think. And I think we're trying to tell you to think for yourself. And, and that's why I do believe we're in the middle is apply your own critical thinking, your own critical thought, make the best decisions that are right for you, the right for your family, that it's going to lead you down that path of, of leading the life for you. Um, I don't want to tell people what to do. Don't listen to me. And you should be thinking and for yourself. He feeds his kid alcohol. <laughs> He grabs the glass. I take it from his hands. I'm a good dad. All right, last question. Go ahead. This is me, huh? Yeah. Uh, you guys are very contrarian, critical. See? All right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but I want solutions. What are your solutions to fix the mental health system? And this comes from too many people to count. And so we've been getting a lot of these type of questions. Uh, hey, that that is... That is the point. You know, we need to offer up a little bit, Raj. But, you know, what about mental health system? You've got ideas, right? Yeah, I, I get this question all the time. Um, I feel like I, I promote some solutions on my Twitter. I think we've been talking about things here. Um, like even today when I mentioned the normalization of human struggle and suffering and the challenges we all face, can that's destigmatizing, mm-hmm. right? So obviously, I don't think the way to improve the mental health system is to drive more people to drugs. Uh, you know, that's that's very, very clear. What I, I prefer um, on, a, on a global level is to think about the, the complexities of how we feel. If, if we're talking about mental health means our mental well-being, our emotional health, we want to talk more about the complexities that lead to one feeling the way that they do and it has to be a part of an integrated health system. So when we publish an episode on life-changing habits, you know, we're, telling, we're talking to you about the importance of things like sun exposure, um, your sleep-wake cycle. We're going to talk about the importance of, obviously, exercise. I can't wait for us to get into nutrition and gut health. And oh, yeah, that's a good topic. Yeah. And we'll have to bring experts on in, in that area, nutrition and, ex- and gut health, nutrition... Uh, nutrient deficiencies and how they impair, impact anxiety, depression. Mm-hmm. But then there's so much more about this life, whether it's uh, our purpose, the condition and environments we live in, love, the lack thereof, love, exposure to traumatic events, spirituality, sense of purpose, uh, family, friendship. Um, all these things are, are interacting with each other. Most importantly, coping. How do we cope with the adverse events? They're always interacting with each other in order to create a mental kind of space or response. And how can we change the mental health system? There shouldn't be a mental health system. In fact, the system as we know it should, should be for the select few who are really struggling with mental health conditions. You might see them as the homeless individual 
who is struggling with schizophrenia or somebody who um, is really at risk, dangerous to themselves, to somebody else because of their mental well-being has deteriorated to such an extent. Uh, depression has become so severe that they're, cha- that they're questioning their own desire and intention to live. I do believe that there should be mental health professionals, obviously, and a system in place to support them. But they should be based on sound science. And that sound science should drive empirically validated therapies and approaches that um, respect the complexity of these conditions. And most important, most importantly, they reflect what we don't know. Uh, so often in uh, medical fields in modern society, they're afraid to say, hey, we don't really know why someone has schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. We don't know why you just went through a manic episode. But here are your options on how we can best respond. Are there incidents or situations where a drug can stabilize a condition? Yeah, remember, it's inducing a change in your physiology. And maybe, you know, that drug for a period of time can help you while other conditions are being addressed. Okay. It's an entire podcast to get into some of the complexities of this. But again, I think the, I don't think we need more mental health professionals. I think we need less people in the mental health industry and we need greater expertise and collaboration in a multidisciplinary health system. That's what I believe. Um, And I think as far as educating our families and our schools, it's about correcting a lot of this information that is false and actually drives people to struggle with their ability to cope with the life events. And that's where we're concerned about a greater system, whether it's government, whether it's education, uh, whether it's psychiatry, whether it's psychology, social work, when industries influence the practice of the, of the professional and some of those ideas actually create harm, that's what we need to change. Yeah, I, I struggle with the idea of um, uh, informed, right? So how does the, the normal person become more informed about something that could be impacting themselves or their family? And the only way that I think a solution for right now is just be be weary of the quick fix. Be weary of someone who immediately has the solution to your problem because it's probably much more complicated and complex than that. And don't just jump into the pool head first. Um, take some time, weigh your options, probably stay off WebMD, um, talk to others and try and learn from them before making any decisions for yourself or your family. And I would investigate coping strategies, coping strategies research yeah. um, things that work as well depending on the situation yeah, right yeah absolutely last words i want to just personally thank all our listeners we saw some podcast data recently that we were in the top five percent downloads uh globally and that's after i think this is our 20 this will be 24 yeah. after 24 episodes yeah so what that tells me even though our listening audience is just growing it tells me that what we're talking about is something that's really valuable and has hit home to many of the listeners. And if changes are going to occur, it's got to be a groundswell of of support from the masses to be able to take down large-scale industries that have committed fraud, that fail to be able to give the information to the people to make informed health decisions, 
And it's going to be podcasts like ours, both now and in the future, whose purpose is to share that information from myself as a clinical psychologist and all the work that I'm doing, but the experts that we bring on this podcast in the future. We said we were going to, um, we were going to develop 40 episodes in one year. We're going to establish our topics of interest and we're going to establish us as a podcast in this space and try to develop a listening audience before we bring on those experts. But when we do bring on those, those experts, people will know who we are and what we're doing. We have a number of them lined up already. If you're out there, you're listening to us and you have things to say and you have areas of expertise, contact us, radgenpodcast at gmail.com or contact me on my Twitter. Um, find me, Dr. McFillin. Uh, I think it's underscore side D on, on Twitter. Yep. Always in our show summary notes, easy to find. Just you know, click on it, scroll down, email, and link to Roger's Twitter's there. Yeah, this is just the beginning. So thank you to everyone who has been listening to us so far. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.